Well, Bitcoin mania is sweeping the world. Investors, big and small, have propelled the cryptocurrency to record highs, rallying more than 400% over the past year, with one Bitcoin worth more than $50,000. That's per coin as of this taping. Although with the volatility of Bitcoin, that price could dramatically plummet in an instant. But that hasn't deterred either mom and pop or institutional investors with some of the titans of finance getting in the game. Here in Washington, the Chamber of Digital Commerce is helping to promote the acceptance and use of digital assets and blockchain-based technologies and serving as a bridge between the industry, investors, policymakers, and regulatory agencies. Joining me now to get us up to speed on all the news and developments in DC and beyond is the Chamber's founder and president, Perianne Boring. She's been named America's top 50 women in tech by Forbes. In 2016, Boring was named 10 most influential people in blockchain by the premier crypto trade publication, Coindesk. Prior to forming the chamber, Perianne was a television host and anchor of an international finance program that aired in more than 100 countries to more than 650 million viewers. She began her career as a legislative assistant in the U.S. House of Representatives, advising on finance, economics, tax, and healthcare policy. Perianne, welcome to Techtopia. Hey, Chitra. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. $50,000 a coin. Did you ever think you would see the day? <laughs> it, it, it's it's quite interesting. I've been uh, following Bitcoin since 2010 or 11, really early days. So when I first started um, becoming interested in this technology and asset class, uh, it was you know trading at thirteen dollars, and to now look at fifty thousand dollars, that is a pretty dramatic change. Um, however, I still think we are just at the very, very beginning of that S curve adoption curve. So I still think it's undervalued and it's in the long run going to continue to increase in price. How high do you think it's going to go? Well, there's a lot of different investment advisors who have um, who, are, who are trying to value Bitcoin and, and value what its price will be over time. Um, if you look at a stock to flow model, um, Plan B, who's an anonymous uh, investment analyst um, on Twitter, in the stock to flow model, um, he has it at uh, you know up to a million dollars in Bitcoin. Now that's in the long run. So we're looking at eight to 10 years. Um, we represent at the chamber, 25 to 30 investment firms who are investing in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And so we've kind of seen a range of valuations at the lower end, um, 150,000 this year, all the way at the higher end to um, 400. So Guggenheim has the highest um, at about $400,000 a coin. So if you want, I can kind of dig into how they're getting to those numbers, but there's a lot of groups and investors who are expecting uh, significant growth over the next several months. Yeah, and, and tell us a little bit about how they are coming to these numbers. Are they looking at the number of investors getting in the game, the volume of funds that are pouring into it? What's the secret sauce? Okay, so there's a couple uh, major factors that go into Bitcoin's supply and demand and price. So uh, Bitcoin is a network. 
So how do investors value a network? Um, you look at its growth. So what makes a network valuable is the more people that use it. You can apply this to other technologies like the iPhone, to personal computers, to the adoption of the internet. Um, and one way that we measure, you can measure the growth of a network is looking at how long it takes to go from 0% adoption to 10% adoption. Then the same amount of time it goes, it takes to go from zero to 10% adoption is about the same amount of time it takes to go from 10 to 90% adoption. This model has played true for so many different technologies like the iPhone, like the internet itself, like personal computers. And I also believe you'll see a very similar adoption curve for cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin in particular. So Bitcoin um, in 2019 was at about 15% adoption. Um, there was a study that was published by Forbes that about 15% of Americans owned some form of cryptocurrencies. Um, so uh, we're at year 12 of, of Bitcoin. And if we were at 15%, um, I think that was published in either 20, I think it was actually 2019, that study was published. So we can expect if we were at 15% adoption around 2019, 2020, uh, we can expect to be at about 90% adoption around eight or nine years from now. So that's what I mean by we're at the very, we're still at the bottom of that S curve. We're still at the very bottom of adoption. We still have a long way to go until this is widely accepted and used um, by, by your average consumer. Do you remember when you first became interested in cryptocurrency and when you started to believe in the movement uh, and how it's shaped your own uh, trajectory in life and career? Oh, yeah. I mean, so uh, just so you can kind of understand my own personal ethos, um, I was a student of economics at the University of Florida during the 2008 financial crisis. So, and I, I was, I grew up in Florida. I was born and raised, um, actually I was born in Texas, but raised in Florida and my entire family, all my community, everybody I'd ever known was from central Florida. And the, the 2008 financial crisis was essentially the housing bubble bursting. And that was essentially the state of Florida. Because <laughs> Florida was the real estate boom. And uh, that impacted everybody I knew. There were people in my family whose homes went underwater and they lost their homes. Uh, one of my brothers lost his, his job because their company just was completely devastated in the, the, the economic crisis. Um, I saw my parents lose a lot of their life savings and the stock market um, collapse. And as someone, you know, who was young and in college and, you know, there to study economics during this historic economic collapse, I really took it upon myself to try to figure out what was going on. And I was very frustrated because my professors and my textbooks were not able to explain what was happening. And I just realized that there was something going on that was not right. And that, that led me to my own personal study of monetary policy and financial systems. And I was not very happy about what I, I learned on that own kind of personal journey. 
and that you know the government has racked up significant amount of debt on behalf of the taxpayers and uh, really was disenfranchised to learn about the issues between how Washington and Wall Street works and just what money is and how it's issued and how it's debased and how governments can inflate it. And there were just a lot of things about the monetary system that I did not agree with. So I decided to go to Washington and fight for something better. And it was during that time when I was working on the Hill that I was introduced to Bitcoin. And as somebody who had was working and studying in the area of economic policy to learn about a currency that was not created or controlled by a government or a corporation or a group of people. That concept was just very interesting. And I immediately was really just fascinated by this idea of Bitcoin and followed it. And after following this space for many years, I just came to the conclusion that this was gonna be one of the most important and impactful things I would ever see in my life. And I've gotta be a part of it. And uh, that's led me to where I am today at the chamber. So you got in touch with your inner economic anarchist. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I've definitely leaned more, I'm kind of libertarian, I guess, in my, my views, which a lot of people in the crypto space are, um, but, you know, somebody who's worked in public policy today, I consider myself a member of the the, the blockchain party. I, I don't think this should be a political issue. Um, I think people from all across the aisle should, and they do embrace it. Um, and there are a lot of policy issues that need to be worked out as it pertains to this ecosystem. So, so what are the trends and factors that are fueling this exponential growth today? I mean, you're right in the heart of all of this stuff. What's happening? And we're in such an interesting moment in time in history. There, what Paul Tudor Jones calls the great monetary inflation, where the war on COVID has turned into the war on currencies. You have, you know, governments around the world who are looking to fight the issues of the pandemic and are debasing their currencies, and that's leaving investors and asset allocators, corporate treasurers, uh, looking at where to store their, their wealth. And that's been a big question. And today for companies like Tesla or Square or, or MicroStrategies, they're looking at one of the biggest costs, you know, corporate treasurer's biggest cost is debasement. And uh, you know it's inflation, and it's the, the the value of fiat currencies decreasing um, every day. So the demand today in the market for Bitcoin is coming from the fact that Bitcoin has the case for Bitcoin as a store of value has been made to institutional and corporate investors, and they are buying Bitcoin as a way to store value over time. Um, And if you look at the profile of who is buying Bitcoin today, the buyers of Bitcoin today are are coming in and they're buying large amounts of Bitcoin, you know, hundreds of thousands to hundreds of millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. And then they're taking that money off the exchanges and they're putting it in deep cold storage. So that signals a couple things that One, you have investors who are looking at turning this into a long-term investment. 
Um, and that is a very, very different profile than what we saw from the typical buyer and exchange activity in 2017. So we're in a pretty you know, significant bull market today. We were in a pretty significant bear market, uh, bull market in 2017 as well. But the, the, the activity of the buyer and the profile of the buyer is very, very different today than it was just a couple of years ago. Um, in 2017, your typical buyer was somebody who was trading and speculating. Today, your buyer is a, an investor who's putting it in long-term uh, storage. Um, so that signifies a much more sophisticated investor and a big shift in where demand is coming from. And uh, you know, I, I believe that's your corporate and your institutional investor. And was there a moment like when Elon Musk declared he's, you know, putting $1.2 billion of Tesla funds into Bitcoin. Are there other moments like that that are kind of looking back, people will say those were the defining moments? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, so Elon Musk announced uh, two things. One, that Tesla has put Bitcoin on their balance sheet, but also that they're going to um, start accepting Bitcoin as, as, as payment. That's kind of, you know, I guess, you know, one, one pretty significant announcement from a publicly traded company. There's been a few other, you know, big signals from the market. Uh, MicroStrategies was one of the first public companies to put Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And Michael Saylor, who's the CEO of MicroStrategies, published his corporate playbook. So he went through the whole steps of, you know, what are all the questions and things your, your CFO and your teams need to know and understand in order to do this. And he, my understanding is he gave that playbook to Elon Musk and that led to Tesla making this, uh, this move into Bitcoin. Um, we also saw a very big announcement from Mass Mutual also buying Bitcoin. Um, Mass Mutual being a conservative and long-standing insurance company um, shows you know, a profile of a new buyer, an investor um, into Bitcoin. It's one thing to have a very forward-leaning, technology-savvy company with a CEO that's you know, known for innovation to buy Bitcoin. It's very different you know, when, when you see a, you know, a conservative regulated financial institution buying Bitcoin. And we're starting to see, see that shift. And I imagine that that's changing your makeup of the chamber as well. I mean, when you started out, you know, you were a scrappy little outfit, right? Trying to get the attention of members of Congress and policymakers and trying to educate everybody about cryptocurrency. And now uh, the chamber has grown to become one of the most important trade associations in Washington. Uh, what's your makeup looking like? And, and what are some of the things that you are now starting to deal with by way of policy? Yeah, it's been quite an amazing journey. So we launched the chamber in July of 2014. So we'll be turning seven years old this summer, which is uh, so much has happened in seven years. It, it seems like it's been seven decades. And then in, in some instances, it feels like it's just been one really long day because things happen so fast in this space and they move so quickly. So um, the chamber has grown significantly in, you know, over the past seven years. Uh, today, we are the largest um, nonprofit serving the digital asset ecosystem. We have over 220 member companies 
And our members represent the digital asset and blockchain technology ecosystem globally. We represent the most important and prolific investors and innovators in this space. Everything from some of the world's largest banks and financial institutions are a part of the chamber, groups like JP Morgan and Wells Fargo and Citi and BNY Mellon, who just announced their Bitcoin custody project and BNP Paribas, to some of the you know, largest and most well-respected technology companies in the world from IBM and Cisco and Microsoft and Facebook to traditional exchanges like the, the I guess your incumbents like NASDAQ and the, the CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and then all the way to uh, all of the startups and the pioneering community um, in the digital asset industry uh, from your leading custody providers like Anchorage to your traditional crypto exchanges like Bittrex and Gemini to analytics providers who are running you know, forensics from chain analysis and cipher trace uh, to wallet providers and many others. So what's really interesting about the, the Chamber of Digital Commerce is we've been able to bring people in both the financial services community and the technology community together to collaborate on the future of what blockchain technology is going to look like. And it's been a really just amazing place to get to share ideas and build partnerships and relationships and to educate larger audiences. And uh, it's, it's, it's a very exciting place to be today. And we are witnessing a huge tectonic shift in our financial and our monetary system, but also in the, the digital economy overall. So you have all of these believers, new believers, true believers in the financial industries. And then on the other hand, you've got some major investors like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, Berkshire Hathaway, even key influencers like Bill Gates, you know, who are repeatedly warning, especially average against average people, uh, sinking their life savings into these currencies because they're so, so volatile. And I imagine that uh, and, and Gates also, as you know, he's written a new book on how to save the environment. And he has talked about the environmental costs of mining coins because they require so much energy. So who's right? Who's right on this? <laughs> Good question. There's a few things there you, you could talk about. I think there's a lot of just general misinformation about what proof of work is, which is what you know the mining process, how you authenticate and verify transactions in the Bitcoin ecosystem. It does use energy. One thing a lot of people don't understand is that there's an economic incentive in the mining process. So whatever miner is the fastest wins and gets the bounty, which is new Bitcoin that uh, is created through the protocol. Um, so there is an incentive to be the fastest and to be the most efficient. And that has driven mining to be mostly done in green energy and clean energy. Over 70% of mining energy comes from clean energy sources. And people don't, don't know that, people don't understand that. And there, again, there's a lot of misinformation about 
what mining actually is today. And the community really does need to do a better job at helping people clarify those misconceptions. The other thing, you know, the real um, innovation of what Bitcoin is, is for the first time, Bitcoin enabled people to send a, a digital asset, so, you know, Bitcoin, peer-to-peer, so, in, you know, to each other um, in a digital way without going to a third party like a bank. And instead of having to drive to a bank or use a, uh, a traditional payment system, um, whether that's a remittance system or, or your local bank, uh, you can do it through the Bitcoin network, which does expend energy. But I would guess that the amount of energy it takes to verify a transaction in a peer-to-peer -peer way using Bitcoin can be nowhere near the amount of energy it takes for the entire banking system to work. Think about all the infrastructure that goes into these intermediaries, everything from the brick and mortar institutions to the people that work there, to the cars that it takes to get people to and from these institutions, to the systems that they run on. So I believe if you looked at the true energy cost and usage of using a distributed payment system like Bitcoin to a centralized payment system like our what we you know the, the traditional uh, financial system today, you would not be able to compare them. Um, and again, I do think the community needs to do a better job of clearing up these misconceptions because there is a lot of false information about what mining is and the true energy cost it takes to run this network. That's fascinating. Congress and regulatory and policy making bodies and the Biden administration are going to be focusing on a range of issues, right? From protecting investors as these currencies gain in popularity to uh, preventing money laundering and protecting the environment. What are you seeing on Capitol Hill and in various agencies on what key priorities are emerging and how well prepared uh, uh, US leaders are to actually understand and deal with these incredibly complex issues? Yeah, so what I, I've been uh, telling our members is it's a new year, <laughs> we have a new administration um, with new leadership on the House in, the, in Congress as well. There's going to be new risk and new opportunities. Um, and we're seeing many, many changes in, in the policy landscape and in Washington today. Um, you're right that the Biden administration, a huge campaign promise is climate change. So again, I think a big priority needs to be to ensure our policymakers actually understand what proof of work is and understand how uh, decentralized payment systems are a way to achieve some of those clean energy goals that, that, that have been outlined by the Biden-Harris administration. Um, but they also do have a big focus on consumer protections and investment protections and also financial inclusion. So it, one of the complications of the public policy and regulatory issues for Bitcoin in the US is that we have a very fragmented regulatory structure where you have a whole bunch of agencies and regulators that have jurisdiction over different areas of law. You have FinCEN, who's looking at the anti-money laundering laws. You have IRS, which oversees tax. You have the SEC, which is looking at all securitized and the securities laws for financial instruments. And then you have the CFTC, a separate futures regulator. 
Well, things within the cryptocurrency community can um, cross over in all of those, those regulatory buckets. And so that's a lot of different regulatory issues to have to coordinate. Very different than if you go to another jurisdiction like the UK, for example, where they have the Financial Conduct Authority. It's really a one-stop shop and all your regulatory um, issues can be resolved in one office or agency or compare that to Singapore where they have the monetary authority of Singapore, which again has that financial services regulatory one-stop shop. You're not dealing with many different agencies um, and the, uh, the monetary authority is also their central bank. So it also includes that function as well. So when we talk about, you know, what is the Biden-Harris administration's uh, you know, how is that going to impact the cryptocurrency space? You have to look at all these different bodies of law and how they're going to look at it from an AML perspective, from a tax perspective, to investor protections and consumer protections. And I think in some areas, it will be very positive for this space because I do believe cryptocurrencies are something that can fulfill some of these interests like financial inclusion, um, but there's also areas where there's going to be some risk and we look at things like investor protections and consumer protections. And it is going to be very important that the chamber and the community is very active and working with new leadership at the SEC and the CFTC so we can make sure that the regulators goals of protecting our financial system and protecting investors and protecting consumers does not conflict with supporting the development and the further innovation of this incredibly important and promising technology of blockchain. And that's always a very fine balance. And that's a big part of what we do at the chamber. And that's why it's important that we have dedicated experts in Washington who are making sure that we get public policy right, because it can impact the future of the industry and what our role will be on the global stage. And if you don't get that right, I think we have everything to lose. I think one thing is clear is that you can't have financial leaders anymore who don't have a grounding in uh, digital assets and cryptocurrency. How is the Biden administration doing in terms of some of the people it's going to be, it has named or is going to be naming to key posts? Yeah, I, maybe we we'll, can just take it agency by agency. And a lot of these folks are, are they're rumored, nominated, not confirmed. So all of this is happening in real time and it's too early to know some of these um, for sure. So uh, maybe we'll just start with the SEC. So it's rumored that, well, I think uh, Gary Gensler has been nominated to be the chair of the SEC. So I'm getting a lot of questions about what's our take on Gary Gensler as the new SEC chair. He has not been confirmed yet. So he's not, you know, he, we have an acting chair. Um, Mr. Gensler is not serving in that role yet, so he has not made any speeches or statements or really he hasn't given anything to the community for us to truly understand what it, you know, his leadership is going to be like for the cryptocurrency space at the SEC. And that's really a key agency for our industry because the SEC has not provided clarity to the digital asset space on which tokens are securities and which ones are not. And that's held back business in a very, very big way in the United States. So we're all hopeful that we will get additional clarity from the SEC under Gary Gensler's leadership. But 
again, that can, you know, regulatory clarity can cut both ways if it's not done quite right. Gary Gensler previously served as the chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. The past two chairs, um, Harbert and Christian Carlo, were very, very big proponents of digital assets and champions for the industry. Um, so, you know, those who have served at the CFTC most recently have been very supportive of the growth of the space. After Gary left the CFTC, he has been serving at MIT and their digital currency lab. So the interesting thing about um, Gary Gensler is that he is very well-versed and educated on crypto. That's a good thing. We want our regulators to be educated. We want them to have a technical understanding of the space so we can have more sophisticated conversations with them. But the thing about Gary Gensler is, you know, he's serving in a democratic administration that does have a, has a priority of consumer and investor protections, and that could cut in, in two different ways. So the SEC will be a very important agency to work with very closely through this administration, um, and it will be in a position to shape what America's role is going to be in this global technology ecosystem. And who are a couple of the others that uh, we should at least mention quickly on and the role they might play? Uh, yeah, so the, the next would be the CFTC. It is remembered that Chris Brummer will be the head of the CFTC. Chris Brummer has, uh, is a professor at Georgetown Law School. And he is also very well educated and versed in cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. I believe he will continue to be a champion for this space as the past two CFTC chairs have. One of the reasons why I believe that is because Chris uh, spearheaded Georgetown's, Georgetown Law School's cryptocurrency, I guess is their fintech forum. Um, and he has invited all the leading um, innovators in the crypto space to come to Georgetown and share their innovations in Washington. So I think that's a very positive signal at the CFTC. And then of course, Treasury with Janet Yellen, who's, who is serving in that role. Janet Yellen, you know, previously served at the Fed. Uh, she is now transitioning from, you know, her previous role as being the chair of the Fed to being a regulator. And well, I guess you're still a regulator as the chair of the Fed, but you're a different perspective from Treasury than Fed because Treasury oversees FinCEN, which is your anti-money laundering regulator, OFAC, which is looking at sanctions, and then the IRS. Um, so Janet Yellen has made a couple statements about Bitcoins, the um, illicit uses of Bitcoin in cryptocurrencies. I do think that's Treasury's role. They're regulating anti-money laundering and sanctions compliance. And it is important that they're tough on those types of things, um, but not in a way that's going to stifle the growth. And there has been a lot of rulemaking coming out of um, FinCEN in particular that would apply to cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. I don't see that as a particularly large issue, but definitely an, an area that does require um, a lot of collaboration with industry. And in the past, they've been pretty good at that. So between SEC, CFTC, and Treasury, those are really the main ones. 
that we're watching. And then maybe just the last one would be the OCC. And the person who is expected to chair the OCC is a former board member of Ripple. So that, that's you know, potentially a very interesting development, although that person has very few public speeches or statements. So the jury is still out there as well in terms of what their position and tenor and tone towards cryptocurrencies uh, will be. So there are clearly a lot of seasoned hands who understand the issues. It's just a question of watching and waiting to see how they're going to come down on some of these key issues. And if you were to sum up like the top three most important issues that the Chamber of uh, Digital Commerce is going to take on this year and in, in order to educate and uh, inform leaders uh, and also your new members, but also to protect the interests of your membership, what would they be? Okay, so when it comes to the SEC and the CFTC's jurisdiction, one of the main issues that we're working on there is clarifying the jurisdiction of digital tokens. Again, the industry does not have clarity on which tokens would be in the SEC's jurisdiction versus what tokens are going to be in the CFTC's jurisdiction. There's a little bit of friction through that process. Um, and that also is a pretty big challenge to businesses because if you don't understand who your regulator is, you can't build your compliance program. And that's just a non-starter. So clarifying the jurisdiction is one. Two, for tokens that are securities, um, there's a lot of things to work through in the digital asset securities ecosystem, things like custody. Um, so those are issues that we're working on with the, with the SEC as well. Two would be anti-money laundering regulations. Um, there has been uh, significant rulemakings at FinCEN um, on the travel rule and on a separate regulation on certain transactions involving self-managed wallets. And some of those rules could be quite devastating to certain innovations in the crypto space. So working with FinCEN on AML-related regulatory issues is a huge priority and a place we're spending a lot of resources. And then the third is on tax. So if you are involved in any type of digital asset transaction, the IRS has determined digital assets will be taxed as property. And there's a lot of compliance issues that need to be worked out. There's many questions. For example, we don't have accounting standards for digital assets. So for a public company that wants to hold Bitcoin on their balance sheet, there's a lot of questions that corporate treasurers and their accountants and their CFOs have to work through. So promoting clarity on tax compliance is uh, so people can use this technology and buy it and invest in it responsibly and do things the right way is also an area that requires uh, more investment of our time at the chamber and working with our public policymakers. That's great. perry do you have any um, closing thoughts on where you see uh, the future of cryptocurrency and how it's going to shape our future in the next decade or so and beyond? Um, yeah, that's a big existential question. I truly believe our monetary and financial system is going through a huge transformation. Um, I do think there are significant uh, systemic issues in, in the current financial and monetary system. And those are starting to really, we saw that in 2008 and we're seeing more of that now with what's going on in the response to COVID. 
I truly believe that blockchain technology and digital assets like Bitcoin are going to be a huge driver in this technological shift and will be a part of the backbone of our financial system in the future. Um, so I do think there's not a person or company or an organization or an institution that won't be using, touching, or relying on blockchain technology in the future. But that is a long-term thing. I think this technology is going to play a critical role in the digital economy for many generations to come. And that is why I am such a passionate advocate because I, I want the United States to get this right. I want companies to be able to navigate this space responsibly. And I want all of us to be able to share those benefits um, to ensure our uh, technological leadership globally, um, but also so we can have a more sturdy and transparent financial system um, that we can all use and benefit from. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Chacha. Absolutely. It was great to be here. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share my thoughts as well. Perry Ann Boring is founder and president of the Digital Chamber of Commerce in Washington, D.C. She was named America's Top 50 Women in Tech by Forbes. And in 2016, Boring was named 10 Most Influential People in Blockchain by Coindesk. This is Techtopia. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Techtopia is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland, and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of Techtopia. I'll see you then.